Hello and welcome back to Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast. I am your host, Justina Licata, and I'm a 20th century historian that focuses on the history of birth control, feminism, and population control policy. As you likely suspected, this podcast looks at the history of Norplant, and Norplant was the first implantable subdermal contraceptive device. It consisted of six silicone rubber rods that were filled with a man-made hormone, and when inserted under the skin of a woman's upper arm, prevented pregnancies for up to five years. Norplant was FDA approved in December of 1990. The previous episode examined the first time a governmental entity in the U.S. incentivized Norplant's use. More specifically, I told you about Judge Howard Broadman's decision to order Darlene Johnson, an African-American mother convicted of child abuse, to use Norplant as part of her parole agreement. In this episode, I will examine a program implemented in Baltimore City Schools in 1992. That year, city officials initiated a program that allowed health clinics in public schools to prescribe Norplant to teenage students. They hoped that this program would help slow down the city's high teenage pregnancy rates. Similar to Darlene Johnson's case, this program created significant debate, especially amongst the African-American community. I wanted to bring more voices into this conversation. Therefore, I asked six UNC Greensboro students, undergrad students I should say, to talk to me about their thoughts on this program and the national debate it produced. Because I'm recording amid the COVID-19 pandemic, all of these conversations occurred virtually, which meant we were limited to two small groups of three students each. Also, in the fall of 2018, each of the students that participated in these conversations took my class on the history of eugenics and neo-eugenics at UNCG. Therefore, we had already had some discussions about birth control's history and its connections to sterilization practices in the past. I also chose to interview these students because of their interests, but also because of their age. They're all much closer to high school and the teenage years, and so I was interested to consider their perspective as it is much closer to the students that were impacted by the Baltimore program in 1992. Our conversations revolved around whether these teenage girls were provided a choice, was this an incident of coercion, or was it something in between? Our discussions considered the student's age, race, and class. Together, we examined how these identifying categories contributed to Baltimore City officials' decision to implement this program and the heated debate it created. Before getting into the specifics about this program, let's talk about Baltimore in the years leading up to 1992. The late 1980s and early 1990s was a time when many of Baltimore's African-American residents struggled to find decent jobs. The city also had some of the highest rates of teenage pregnancy in the nation. Critics noted that the majority of these teenage mothers relied on government assistance programs, like state-run welfare systems, food stamps, and government-subsidized health care. At the time, the state and federal government spent about $222 million a year on these programs. Before Norplant's FDA approval in 1990, Baltimore City officials employed many tactics to reduce the teenage pregnancy rates. For instance, two of Baltimore's middle schools and six of its high schools offered family planning services in their healthcare centers. So this means that the clinics that were actually in the public schools could prescribe different forms of birth control to their students. 
Some city officials claim that these citywide programs helped to stabilize the birth rates amongst teenagers. Yet, in the early 1990s, Baltimore still had some of the highest teenage pregnancy rates in the U.S. Shortly after Norplant's FDA approval, Baltimore City officials created an initiative giving some teenage students access to Norplant in their school-based health clinics. The measure focused on getting Norplant into majority-minority public schools. While Baltimore's health commissioner, Peter Bielsen, claimed that a number of parents and students requested it, the decision can also be attributed to a privately funded grant. That same year, the Abel Foundation, a Baltimore-based organization dedicated to financing health, education, and economic development ventures, awarded Maryland's Health Department a $200,000 grant. These funds were meant to help the city introduce Norplant to low-income women who qualified for state-based medical assistance and lacked private insurance. This grant prompted Bielsen to make Norplant available to students in one school's health clinic. The school chosen for this pilot trial was Lawrence G. Pockwin. Pockwin was a combined middle and high school that exclusively taught pregnant teens and girls who were already mothers. Of Pockwin's 350 female students, all but five were African American. Despite these numbers, Dr. Bielsen, the city's health commissioner, argued that the Norplant program was implemented without any racial bias. Instead, he contended that Pockwin was chosen for two reasons. First, studies showed that teen mothers are at higher risk of becoming pregnant than teens who have never been pregnant. Second, Pockwin's African-American principal, Dr. Rosetta Stith, was exceptionally supportive of the program. Stith, a Baltimore native, had a reputation as a strong supporter of both her teenage students as well as their young children. She believed that many of her students and teenage mothers in general did not consider the consequences of having children and that the environment they were raised in often led to dependence on welfare. Further, Stith told the city and the media that her students enthusiastically supported the program and they were eager to have Norplant made available to them. She told the New York Times that her students considered the implant, and I quote, an advanced method that would let them go on with their lives without worrying about getting pregnant or remembering to get their birth control prescription refilled, end quote. As the public became increasingly aware of Baltimore's Norplan program, a tense national debate broke out. The controversy illuminated a deep-seated divide within the African-American community. Some activists and organizations considered Baltimore's program to be a form of race-based population control, linked to a long history of discrimination against Black mothers. Others, mostly middle- and upper-class African Americans, insisted the program would aid young mothers as they worked towards completing their education. One of the loudest groups opposing Baltimore's Norplan program was the Nation of Islam. Historically, the Nation of Islam advocated for a racially segregated society, and its male leaders promoted strict gender norms and celebrated nuclear family units headed by black men. Because the Nation of Islam had long prioritized men's protection of black women and racial purity, the organization strongly objected to any use of birth control. In the early 1990s, the Nation of Islam argued that Norplant was developed to destroy black women and children. Further, they believed that Baltimore's Norplant program was a premeditated attack on African Americans, and the organization's leaders called the program genocide. Alongside the Nation of Islam, a group of African American ministers representing over 200 of Baltimore's black churches argued that white Americans should not be allowed to dictate African Americans' procreation. 
one of the organization's leading reverends pointed out white city officials' hypocrisy, and I quote, You know as well as I know that they wouldn't let their 12-year-old girl get Norplant, and I know their daughters are just as sexually active as anybody else, end quote. Conversely, President Bill Clinton's African-American Surgeon General, Dr. Jocelyn Elders, supported Baltimore's attempts to decrease the city's high teenage pregnancy rates. Throughout Elder's career, she fearlessly took on contentious issues, especially regarding sex and the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, including vehemently disagreeing with abstinence-only sex education. While Elder's political beliefs were often seen as controversial, her supporters commended her for her commitment to serving vulnerable populations. During her tenure as Surgeon General, Elders made reducing teenage pregnancy a primary goal. Elders' dedication to the issue was reflected in her unapologetic and polarizing comments about Baltimore's no-plant program. Black people do not want their children born to children, she said. Directly addressing African Americans who disagreed with the program, she asserted, and I quote, Whoever goes around talking about genocide is someone who likes to see people in slavery, end quote. Reproductive rights organizations quickly joined the debate. Women's health activists worried that supplying teens with Norplant would lead to increases in STDs, and particularly AIDS. In an appearance on The Donahue Show, a talk show hosted by Phil Donahue, Stith, Paquin's principal, directly responded to these concerns. During this appearance, she countered the public's perception of young black poor women as promiscuous by emphasizing that they did not see Norplant as, and I quote, a license for casual sex. End quote. It's hard to know for sure how Paquin's students felt about this program and Norplant in general, but we do have some of their voices. And many of Paquin's students spoke out in support of the program, saying that Norplant would help them earn their diplomas. For instance, Consuela Law and Kimberly Lucas each had two children by the time they were 19 years old. Both women chose to have Norplant inserted, believing it would help them get into college and acquire good jobs. In an article in Newsweek, Law was quoted, Without it, I'd probably have more children. I want to complete my education, end quote. Another student featured in a CBS Evening News report addressed the critics who called Baltimore's program ethnic genocide. She told a reporter, and I quote, It is not a race thing, it's a pregnant thing, end quote. Eleven of the estimated 100 non-pregnant Paquin students had Norplant inserted during the first semester of the program. In my conversation with the UNCG students, I began with just asking for a general response to this very contentious debate. Jessica Agamavo, a poli-sci major and 19-year-old, started off our conversation. It's tough. Can you elaborate? Well, it's I can see both sides of the argument. Um, on the one side, it's this program that is, you don't find many programs that are like specifically designed to help young mothers like that. Um, and getting an education while having a child can be tough if you don't have that support and everything. Jessica continues this thought by thinking about the student's young age, as well as the conversations that they may or may not be able to have with their parents based on their political and religious ideologies. 
I know it's like there could be like issues. I can see where they're saying, but like there's issues because a lot of people come from like conservative households and birth control and contraceptives are like kind of really frowned upon. And I know like Planned Parenthood has this thing where like you can go in and it can like be discreet and everything. But I feel like you shouldn't be at 13 years old be allowed to sign off on having an implant inserted into your body that you know controls your reproduction. You just don't you don't have that mental capacity to be able to understand the decision you're making. Mary Grace Stilley, a sustainability studies major and sophomore, adds to Jessica's comment here while also reflecting on what her own thought process might have been as a teen. Making those decisions as a young girl when it like because it was supposed to last like up to five years. Like I've never <laughs> I can never commit to anything for that long, especially like as a 13 year old when I'm just like I need it now. Just thinking that like that's the only option. Mary Grace added. Because I'm like, I'm on birth control pills, but like you have to pay every month. If you don't have good insurance, they're like kind of expensive, especially like as kids, like with children. I'm sure they didn't have a lot of like disposable income, even if they wanted to take the pill. Similar to my students' responses to this debate, people are unsure of what to think of this program. And ultimately, all the conversation around it forced Baltimore City Council to hold a hearing. Approximately 300 people attended the emotionally charged event that lasted more than six hours. The audience and speakers consisted of city council members, city officials, Paquin students, religious leaders, residents, and more than 100 members of the Nation of Islam. At the hearing, one Nation of Islam representative proclaimed, and I quote, I will not sit by and let my sisters and my children be destroyed by Norplant. End quote. Carl Stokes, an African-American city councilman, described the program as, and I quote, a social and medical experiment on children, end quote. Stokes accused the chairman of the hearing of cutting off individuals who testified against the program. Other opponents voiced concerns over the lack of protection Norplant provided against STDs and the drug's insufficient testing. Also at the hearing, several Paquin students spoke out in favor of the program, attesting that it helped them regain stability and hope for their future. Bielsen also spoke up. He stressed that no student had or would be coerced into using Norplant. He, along with the hearing's chairman, accused their adversaries of using the program as a political platform to further their own agenda. The hearing was so contentious that it led Washington, D.C.'s health commissioner to halt plans of their own Norplant program. Following the hearing, Baltimore's health officials closely monitored the program's impact on Pahakwin's student body. They contended that while some of the students experienced minor side effects, none chose to have their Norplant device removed. In addition, post-insertion checkups revealed that most of the Norplant patients claimed to have increased their condom use, resulting in only one STD transmission. Officials attribute the increase in condom use to the counseling given both before and after each student received their implants. These initial successes motivated city officials to expand the program to five additional schools. Before implementing these expansions, they spoke with Baltimore's prominent religious groups, a citywide community health advisory group, and local parents. They also made an effort to educate the school's faculty and administrative staff. City officials gave a series of presentations to the students, covering an array of topics including abstinence, Norplant, and other birth control options. 
Prioritizing student accessibility, city officials argued that school-based health clinics were the ideal location for offering teenage girls birth control. By 1995, the city had expanded the program into three additional high schools with plans to enter more. Evidence suggests that while some student users became staunch Norplant advocates, the number of teenage girls who chose to use it was low. It was not a popular choice in school clinics. Many of my students thought that while this Baltimore Norplant program did make Norplant accessible to teens in Baltimore, there was significant potential for abuse, and that was very concerning. Joshua Burns, a history and secondary education major with a minor in political science, discussed his thoughts. Well, initially, it sounds like on paper, it would sound like a great program because I think the majority of people are very much against teenage pregnancy, just considering that teenagers in that stage of life, for the most part, are not ready for the responsibility of raising a child. And also, it's like a huge disruption to like uh, the advancement in like their education and their career. Uh, so on paper, it sounds like a very like great idea. I mean, this new contraception that can stop teenage pregnancy, it's very effective. And you don't have to worry about it for a long time. The only thing that is very worrisome is like there isn't a lot of information on the contraception during that time. And I don't think a lot of the teenagers are aware of that or their parents. So going deeper into it, there would be a lot more worries. And just the fact that um, a large, like the majority of the students that would be using it are African-American. And um, I see some like, underlying reason for that. Maris Jones, a communication studies major, agreed with Joshua's assessment that this program and issue was incredibly complicated. That I see both sides to it, to where it could be a really good program in certain aspects. To me, I'm just thinking about the age range, too. When you think about, like, the emotional maturity level, like, getting something like your plant, they might not even be able to consent, or at least they might not be thinking about possible associated with not thinking that. You're thinking, oh, I'm not going to have another baby. This is fine. But then I also don't want to say that because then their emotional maturity could be up because of the fact they went through something, like having a baby at such a young age. Theodore Barklage, a sophomore physics student, reflected on Maris's point while also emphasizing the value of giving some of these teens access to what was a very expensive contraceptive device. I feel like a lot of it could depend on each student. Because like, I feel like if there was a student who was saying, I wish there was something like this I could have that would prevent pregnancy again, I would love to have that, then it wouldn't necessarily be. And I think it also depends on how it was being spoken about. I mean, like, like we've been discussing, like, we're not exactly sure how it was discussed and what kind of influence was coming from the top. But I think it definitely is a slippery slope with anything regarding especially teenagers' health that they can't, I mean, like, teenagers are children, and, like, we're talking about children's health, and it's just so difficult to say whether or not it's coercion if you don't know how it was spoken about to them. During our conversation, Emma Sheeran, a pre-nursing major, reflected on how these students could have been persuaded by their teachers, principals, and other influential leaders at Paquin and in the city of Baltimore. One teacher at my high school here that, like, everyone loves him. I can so see, like, being a teen mom and latching on to, like, a figure in school and then being like, you're going to have this drug in your arm you're not going to get pregnant anymore. I'd be like, okay, person that I idolized now told me, but their lack of options being told from like the top down 
right. the Surgeon General. You're like, that's kind of, that's, that's a little coercion. After much discussion, the students came to the belief that while this program did have the potential to help some of these students regain stability and finish their education, it also had the potential to abuse their reproductive rights. Mary Grace Stilley, who you heard from earlier in this episode, expressed her thoughts on this. I would say that it's more like coercion because like, I feel like with the like limited knowledge of it, they were kind of only doing what they do to sell it because like the school might be like giving it out for free, but like somebody's paying for it. So in order to make money, you have to like tell them only the good things. They like they sell you all these like pros and like it'll be easy. It lasts forever. It's a one time thing. You just get it in, get it out. Super easy. I just feel like that seems too good to be true. And a lot of like people at the time, because they were like, this is revolutionary. They just believed it. Jessica, who you also heard from earlier in this episode, agreed with Mary Grace's assessment. I think I'm leaning more toward the coercion part too, because yeah, contraceptives aren't, you know, a one size fits all type of deal, if you know what I'm saying. It's very dependent on the individual woman and her body. So it's like you have all these middle schoolers going around, hey, this is great, you know, and it's not going to be great for everybody. So I just, I think the fact that it was only one contraceptive being pushed and then also the age range, it, it makes that, it makes it kind of really iffy. While Baltimore's Norplant program did little to impact the city's high teenage pregnancy rates, it did expose the fierce debate over the ethics of encouraging young women to use a provider-controlled contraceptive. It is clear that while some associated the program and Norplant with reproductive empowerment, others considered it to be population control and unlawful sterilization practices. Before I tell you about my next episode, I wanted to thank the UNCG students for their contributions. So thank you, Jessica, Maris, Emma, Theo, Josh, and Mary Grace. The next episode will wrap up the short biography of Norplant. In that episode, we will look at state lawmakers' efforts to encourage welfare recipients to use Norplant. This episode will include portions of my conversation with Brandi Collins Calhoun, a leading reproductive justice activist in the Greensboro area, and she's also done some work in DC. She will reflect on this history while updating us on important reproductive issues that impact women of color, indigenous women, and poor women today. Please come back to learn more about the history of Norplant, social policies in the 1990s, and reproductive justice. I am Justina Licata, and this is Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast.